Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 24, two-year anniversary of your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. This is Push Dose EMS. I am Jeff Matcher, your host, uh, Clinical Education QA Manager for the county. Uh, joining me is a good number of the portion of our regular cast of characters today. Uh, going down my list, uh, System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. And our illustrious fellows, uh, Dr. Nico Rendovich. Dr. Rendovich, welcome. How you doing? And Dr. Brandon Drazich. Dr. Drazich, welcome. Hello, hello. Welcome to everybody. Uh, you may notice uh, one introduction was missing today, and that was uh, EMS Division Director Dan Pojar. And just as part of our brief announcements, so a congratulations to Dan on a uh, new healthy, happy baby joined his family just this week. Uh, so baby and mom are doing well and everyone's resting. So Dan will be out for a couple of weeks and we wish him a quick return and hope that everything goes well. Uh, so no major system updates this month, but I will turn it over to Dr. Weston for the medical direction updates. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Hello, everyone. Uh, just a couple quick ones today. First, of course, congratulations to Dan Pojar on the new addition to his family. I think he's getting busier and busier these days. Uh, also, farewell to our two fellows who we have enjoyed uh, being engaged in all different aspects of our system, perhaps most enjoyably through their banter back and forth uh, here on the podcast that we all, uh, or I'd say most of us at least, the vast majority of us look forward to. Dr. Orendovich will be uh, moving on as planned at the end of his one-year fellowship. Uh, he'll be going to St. Joseph's Medical Center in Joliet, Illinois. Uh, and Dr. Drazich will be going to Essentia Health in Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, and both of them will continue to be engaged in EMS. So we wish them well. We thank them for their time. And we have two new fellows who will be joining us uh, come next month. So we'll introduce them on the next podcast. All right, back to you, Jeff. Uh, thanks, Dr. Weston. So brief for updates this month uh, and allows us to get right into our topic du jour. Uh, similarly to the way we approached the OB and neonatal information, we're going to take a similar topic and moved up just a little bit into pediatrics. Uh, so I will let Dr. Zarendovich and Drazich take it away on the topic of pediatrics uh, trauma and assessment. Gentlemen. It's July. It's hot. I'll be honest, this really wasn't what I expected when we moved up from St. Louis to Wisconsin. I was expecting cooler weather and winter sports. Well, the heat isn't the only thing that seemed to follow us up from St. Louis. Yeah, turns out the number of homicides, non-fatal shootings, and assaults have decided to come with us as well. Sadly, all of these numbers seem to be on the rise, and uh, summer is entering full swing here. This isn't even accounting for me driving a Kia, which is a total mistake to purchase coming up into Milwaukee. Researchers have actually been trying to understand the correlation between heat and violent crimes. And though there are some common sense answers to why it's happening, uh, there's an old proverb which rings true. Sun's out, guns out. And today we wanted to talk a bit about pediatric trauma. You know, 
at this point, we know you guys are really killing it at trauma. No pun intended. And a lot of it's due to good training, great teamwork, and a ridiculous amount of experience. But we wanted to take a moment to appreciate the subtle differences in the management of pediatric patients. Because in the words of every pediatrician ever, kids are not just small adults. So the best way to begin with this is to really start with that general impression. This is that first step that, you know, what do I see, smell, and hear when you walk into the room? That first point of patient contact. We do this reflexively in most cases, but I want to be able to put it into deeper thought into what it means and can allow us to gather a little bit more information when we do this. Obviously, you're going to con consider the mechanism of injury and how the kid is acting, but making use of the pediatric assessment triangle with some practice makes it pretty easy. If you have it available, pull up the pediatric assessment tool in the app to follow along. That triangle really represents a balance of three things, appearance, work of breathing, and circulation to the skin. And it's really worth noting for every pediatric case you run into, that triangle can be useful for everything and anything. In terms of appearance, this is the sense of tone, interactivity, consolability, speech, and cry. In general, the perky, squirming kid that is staring at you, screaming, is going to be in good shape. The floppy, lazy, ragdoll appearance child is not. When we really consider the bottom of the triangle, that work breathing, right side of the triangle, this varies from being very subtle belly breathing to full-blown intercostal retractions, tracheal tugging, and nasal flaring. Traditionally, this has always been seen as something that goes upwards, starts in the belly and makes its way up as they start to get worse. For the younger kids in the neonates, getting them undressed really helps visualize the exact worth of breathing as clothing can definitely mask how hard it is. And then there's circulation and skin. Again, this can be subtle, but you're looking at skin color. The cyanotic child or the kid that looks pale or ashen is going to be showing early signs of shock. So really these edges of the triangle are about that balance again. I'm gonna save the difficulty of explaining a picture over a podcast. So take a moment when you get the chance to review what that lack of balance leads you to as it can give you ideas of respiratory distress or when everything's fallen off the rails, consideration of cardiopulmonary arrest. Marsh, Marshy, did we ever decide on a uh, way of pronouncing this, uh, this acronym? Mar Marchy Comics, I think is a good way. You know, the changes that we made to the recent guidelines. All right, so the next thing we want to go down is these, this Marsh algorithm that we use here specifically in Milwaukee County. Remember, this is slightly different than the typical Marsh algorithm as it focuses on interventions. Remember that first M stands for massive hemorrhage. This one's pretty straightforward, stop the bleed. Where it gets a little bit more nuanced is the amount of blood loss. Now, the typical kid that you look at is going to have between 80 to 90 milliliters per kilo of blood. What this means is that things that can be considered a small amount of bleeding for the average adult can actually be pretty significant. For example, 50 cc's of blood loss or essentially a bloody ABD pad in a five kilo infant is about 10% of their total blood loss. So getting control of the bleeding early, still important and keep your head on a swivel for 
what might seem like initially a low amount of blood loss in a kid? A is for airway. For us, that means suctioning, foreign body removal, airway adjuncts, and cervical collar placement. When we consider airway obstruction, remember that because of how small the airways are in comparison to adults, even small things can lead to an obstruction anywhere from the lips to the carina. This can be as simple as a bean to a small amount of edema uh, from either trauma or burns. Not just that, but when looking at infants, the occiput, the back of the head, is so much larger by comparison that the head is flexed when laying flat to the point where that angle between that and an already floppy, poorly developed trachea can actually contribute to a partial obstruction or even a complete obstruction if there's already an insult in place. Padding and positioning can really help with this. On the other hand, other uh, anatomical parts, notably the tongue and epiglottis, are larger. So essentially you have a small airway that's pretty easy to obstruct, and now large things in the way that can block them. Exactly. And this is why making sure you pick the right size airway adjunct for the right patient. The wrong size can actually promote obstruction. Lastly, when it comes to airway, look, I think we all know this. Babies are dumb. Watch it. Contrary to the typical dumb adult, they're obligate nose breathers. They don't know that they can breathe through their mouths. Really, what this means is to be aware that when facial trauma occurs as blood or a deformity might lead to an obstruction. You might want to consider in these cases lateral positions in these cases or careful bulb suctioning. Now, R is for respirations. This is bag valve mask and oxygen and consideration of that needle thoracostomy. We're not going to jump into the needle aspect as it's essentially the same as an adult. Just remember that they're a lot smaller. Yeah, in kids, the thorax is much smaller and the ribs are far more pliable. What a mechanical way to think about an infant. As a result, they don't really fracture very easily, but they too tend to develop pulmonary contusions more frequently, and that can lead to hypoventilation and hypoxia. These kids tend to do quite well in comparison to their adult counterparts, but just keep that in mind as they may need assisted ventilations even with minor traumas. Remember to keep that end title on to see how they're breathing. C is for circulation. This is the concept of hemorrhage control again, as well as fluids. We covered that a bit with M, but it's worth thinking about pediatric circulation. Kids are really good at maintaining reserve. They vasoconstrict more efficiently and for longer than an adult. As a result, a larger amount of blood can be lost before you see any sign of problems. What does that mean? Well, it means when they dump the last of their adrenaline, which is helping to constrict their vessels, they're going to crash in front of you and they're going to crash hard. One of the only signs you might see is persistent tachycardia. So keep your eyes open for it. The next part is H. It's for head injuries. Head injuries, particularly in infants, are a bit wild. Those first 18 months of life, their skull isn't formed completely. And those cranial sutures and fontanelles or, you know, the soft spots on the tops and back of their head are open. On one hand, it's great because it allows more room to disperse pressure in cases of brain swelling or intracranial bleeding. Hence why we typically 
feel for whether or not the fontanelles are full or bulging. On the other hand, now the skull isn't as useful in protecting the brain. Hey, Nico, quick question. What are the components of the pediatric Glasgow coma scale? Now, that's a great question. I struggle enough with the adult scale to remember the pediatric scale. Putting me on the spot right now, I can tell you pretty much none of it. And that's okay. That's why we have tools for this. There are too many things to memorize in medicine. And of course, we'd rather be right than smart. I look up things all the time. And when we look at the scale, really, it's not that different from the adult scale. It's just that the verbal responses are different in which it's simplified to look at things like cooing, looking decent, and doing nothing which is bad. What about AVPU? This one's a bit easier. This is alert, voice, pain, and unresponsive. It's either a yes or no to each of these choices. So which one do we use? Honestly, it doesn't really matter that much. The important thing is to pick one and do it. But more importantly, do it multiple times with the same person doing that assessment in an effort to maintain consistency during transport. Yeah, you can put three people in a room and get five different GCSs. So consistency is key. The last one we part of the March algorithm is that exposure and expedite. You know, we talk a lot about the full exposure to look for other injuries. And we know we talk a lot about avoiding hypothermia as it makes clotting worse. Clearly, these are counterintuitive. It's worth pointing out that a child's body surface area to body mass ratio is much higher. This means that kids lose heat a lot faster and therefore have a higher risk of developing hypothermia, even on hot days. If left unchecked, these patients might decompensate faster than you expect. Especially since your desired transport location should be chow in most of these cases, and it can be quite a distance for you. Keep an eye out and making sure you keep these kids warm. Finally, let's take a moment to talk about pain control in pediatrics. You know, when I was a kid, I was a huge mama's boy and always went for comfort. Truly, no one likes to be in pain, and I'd like to think none of us like seeing kids in pain, especially when they likely didn't deserve it. We found out that we're remarkably bad at addressing pain in pediatrics. The Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, PCARN, for which uh, Milwaukee County is actually one of the research centers. Well, PCARN showed that children received less pain medications than their adult counterparts by far. We're talking that only 15% of pediatric patients had documented analgesia. If you look at your tools, there's actually two great pediatric pain scoring tools available, FLAC and FACES, and you can always look at the old school numbers. FLAC considers patient movement and is great for patients two months and older. Using the FACES tool, it's good for older kids who might not understand the traditional numbers scale and can point it out in the picture a little bit easier. And then there's the traditional number scale. How bad is it on a scale of 1 to 10? The downside is that, especially kids under 6, but maybe kids in general, it's kind of hard to really determine this and get a good, accurate assessment. Really, the spectrum of pain control is just as wide as adults when we look at it. And most of this we do pretty well with adults. It starts with positions of comfort, splinting, and ice packs. 
As we consider climbing this analgesic ladder, we can consider some simple pharmacologic agents that'll help by the time we get to the emergency department. Things like acetaminophen. Another consideration is the need for an IV and to give IV pain medications. This can be traumatic for these young patients and sometimes even the provider. If you reach that point where you think you need to place an IV on a kid, consider the following. A friend of mine who works at its pediatric patients down in St. Louis shared this with me. Never lie to a kid. This is the number one rule. Once you lose a kid's trust, it's often gone forever. These kids are going to be part of our system for a long time. And a lot of them are going to look up to you as they grow up. So we want them to be on our sides and form a good therapeutic relationship. You want to use kid-friendly wording like pinch in place of you're going to get a big stick when starting IVs. And really explaining what you're doing in words that a kid is going to understand. A kid really doesn't understand why you're placing a tourniquet on them. So use the words like, hey, I'm going to place this rubber band on your arm. They don't really understand things like alcohol, chlorhexidine, or iodine. So consider just saying, I'm cleaning the air with a little bit of cold soap. And I'm not going to place this IV in your veins, but we're going to look for some of those little blue rivers in your arms. And obviously, you're not going to say, I'm going to place an IV or get intravenous access, but placing a little tiny straw. When it comes to IV medications, as we use weight-based dosing throughout the county, it's worth recognizing that the dosing is safe and designed for children. We use the lowest possible dose to achieve the desired result to try to limit any adverse events. So as long as we're doing our proper medication cross-checks, we should be good. And even if we make a mistake, which happens? Remember for most pain medications, airway management's key. One of the major considerations is people begin to hypoventilate or become apneic. So put on that IM title, watch it, respond as necessary. Knowing these clues, our goal is to try to get better pain management for kids throughout our system. Well, we've been lucky and privileged to be part of the development and growth of this podcast over the last year. And we know it, we're leaving it in capable hands going forward for the next year. We were wondering how we were going to close our final podcast out, but we couldn't think of a better way than quoting our greatest mentor ever. You stay classy, San Diego. Thank you, Docs. A wonderful job as always. We were lucky to have you as part of the system. We appreciate all the time and effort that you put in. Good luck in your future endeavors. And thanks to everybody else who's able to join us. And thanks to all of you out there listening in podcast land. Uh, until next month, take care and stay safe. Good night, all.